0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 356. It's titled, How, When, and Why Should You Rebalance Your Investment Portfolio? When I was an institutional investment advisor, I would meet quarterly with many of our clients. We would go over performance, potential portfolio changes, asset allocation, but invariably we would also look at rebalancing the portfolio. It wasn't always easy to do because some of the assets were illiquid, such as venture capital or private real estate. Rebalancing involves selling assets that are overweight their strategic target, and allocating the proceeds to assets that are underweight the target. Because many of the assets were illiquid, oftentimes rebalancing would focus on the public, more marketable investments. Now, there are a number of ways to approach rebalancing. It could be done on a calendar basis, could be monthly, quarterly, annually, or it could be a threshold approach, a tolerance band. We rebalance when an asset is over or underweight its target by three percentage points or five percentage points. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at rebalancing. I pulled all the relevant research I could find over the past decade with regard to what is the best approach to rebalancing and why would we even need or want to rebalance. Let's address that first question, why rebalance? A pure buy and hold portfolio has a major drawback in that because stocks tend to outperform bonds, if an investor has both over time, the higher performing asset class, in this case stocks, will become a larger and larger percent of the portfolio. I saw one academic study that gave an illustration that a US stock and bond portfolio that was 60% allocated to stocks. In 1927, if the portfolio hadn't been rebalanced, by 1929, stocks would comprise 76% of that portfolio. But in 1932, because of the 1929 crash, if that portfolio hadn't been rebalanced, stocks would comprise 32% of the portfolio. Then over time, stocks would have reached 100% of the portfolio. So there's a logical aspect to rebalancing that if there is a target, a portfolio could deviate dramatically from that target if it's never rebalanced. Portfolios that have more stocks are more volatile. The higher the volatility, the ups and down of a portfolio, the more positively skewed it is. Skewness is a statistical term. It means that the median or middle return will be less than the expected return because more of the observations are less than the expected return, which means if you have a portfolio that's positively skewed, there is a greater likelihood that the portfolio will fall below expectations. It will not meet its expected target, although there will actually be a few periods where it significantly outperforms and does better than the expectation. So if we're just looking at a a distribution of the outcome, it's something that's positively skewed, is not normally distributed, with the expected outcome or expected return being in the middle and an even distribution on each side. A positively skewed distribution has more of the outcome to the left of the expected outcome. But there's a fatter tail to the right of the expected outcome with fewer observations but observations that can do significantly better than expected. Interestingly, academics have shown that individual investors like investments that are positively skewed. Think of all the hype that some of these meme stocks have gotten, where the expectation is for huge outperformance. Investors can be attracted to that. Even though investors might have loss aversion Losses viscerally feel worse than gains. Investors also do what's known as narrow framing. They just look at an investment outside of the context of the rest of the portfolio, their employment. They just look at that and they see the potential opportunity. And because it's positively skewed, there can be a huge win that can be attractive. We don't want to fall into that trap when considering our overall portfolio. Our portfolios, outcomes, our wealth that compounds over time, that end-of-period wealth is definitely positively skewed just because of the mathematics of investments and calculating returns, and I'll give an example of that in a minute. Here's an illustration of how volatility impacts skewness. There's a rule of thumb that says an asset with a 7% annual expected return will double in 10 years. The actual portfolio balance will double in 10 years. That's the expectation. But if that asset has a 17% annual volatility, there's a 50% chance that the initial investment will double only after 13 years, which means that if the expectation is it will double in 10 years, if we did a simulation and just showed statistically how often it doubled, You need 13 years for half of the time for the asset to double and half for it not. And there's a 30% chance that that asset will take 20 years to double. Now, let's compare that to an asset that has a 30% annual volatility. In that case, there's a 50% chance it takes more than 22 years to double the initial investment, even though, again, same investment. With a 7% expected return, the expectation is it will double in 10 years. But in reality, half the time, it will take more than 22 years to double. That's what positive skewness is. And 30% of the time, an asset that has 30% annual volatility, it can take more than 59 years to double, which means the lower a portfolio's volatility, the more likely it will meet or exceed its expected outcome. But the higher the volatility, more observations fall below expectations, with a few exceeding those expectations. That phenomena is known as volatility drag. Higher volatilities lead to more portfolio outcomes falling short of expected outcomes. The reason is the higher a portfolio's volatility, the more likely to experience large losses. If we lose 50% on our portfolio, we need a 100% return to get back to even, a 100% gain in one year if we were going to recoup those losses. We would need a 36% annual return for three years running to recoup those losses. The reason why is after losing half our portfolio, our monetary balance, the number of dollars or euros we have, is cut in half. We have less capital. Which means we need a higher percentage of return to compound that capital to recoup to get back to even. The reason we rebalance is it reduces the volatility drag. It keeps our portfolio from becoming overly concentrated in one asset, increasing expected volatility above our target, what our risk tolerance is. So, rebalancing reduces that volatility drag. So, does diversification. A portfolio's expected geometric or compound return is higher than just the weighted average of the expected geometric returns of the individual assets. So we have five assets with differing expected returns, and we take the weighted average of those ex- geometric expected returns and compare that to the geometric expected return of the overall portfolio. The portfolio will have a higher expected return, and that's just the benefits of of diversification. Having said that though, because of positive skewness, the higher the volatility, more of those observations, what actually happens in real life will fall short of those expectations because of portfolio losses and the multiplicative impact of generating returns. As investors, we only get one shot. We pass through time. We don't get to Monte Carlo simulate our portfolio. Whatever returns we get, That's what we get, and that's why asset allocation is so important to get that diversification and to rebalance over time. I recently read a new book by Mark Spitznagel. He's a hedge fund manager. The title of the book is Safe Haven. In the book, he went through the math and showed the impact of positive skewness of a volatility drag. He didn't use those terms, but he showed that by allocating 2 to 3% to a cost-effective safe haven one that reduces the downside those big losses that, that allowed the investor to increase the compound return to take more risk the disappointing part and he warned up front he didn't show us what that 2 to 3% allocation to an insurance like asset would be that's what his hedge fund does Those are his trade secrets. But the math works. If you can identify something like that, it's a way to cut off those losses and reduce the positive skewness and to benefit from higher compounding rates. Now, there are traditional put options, but they are so costly, the performance drag from buying the options, more than offsets the potential gain from reducing that volatility, that downside volatility. So rebalancing is helpful over the long term because it reduces volatility drag and leads to a greater likelihood of achieving the desired portfolio wealth. But there are times when rebalancing hurts performance in the near term. When we sell an asset that's above our target and that asset continues to outperform, then we would have been better off not rebalancing. Or if we buy an asset that's underweight, that's been underperforming, and that asset continues to underperform, that also hurts our performance, and we were better off not to rebalance. We need mean reversion for rebalancing to be effective. We need underperforming assets to bounce back, and those that are outperforming to slacken off. And that can be random how that happens. So really, the benefit of rebalancing is not short-term to intermediate-term. It's the long-term impact of reducing the volatility drag, of not having a portfolio that is more volatile than we desire, increasing the likelihood that we'll fall short of the outcomes we desire. When considering rebalancing, we want to look at the benefits versus the cost. We've discussed some of the benefits. The costs, though, there can be commissions, although those are certainly less in this environment taxes as individual investors there's the real cost of having to pay capital gains tax on an asset that's done very well and then reallocate that to an asset that's underperforming one of the spreadsheet calculators we have on money for the rest of us plus helps members go through that calculation to decide how much better does the underperforming asset have to do with regard to return in order to offset the tax hit from selling the appreciated asset. The more often we rebalance, that will reduce the deviations from our target portfolio, but potentially increases the cost, which then leaves us with the question, well, how frequently should we rebalance, and how should we go about doing that? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion, primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com david. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. I'll share two studies with you. The first one's by Rat Ray, Granger, Harvey, and Van Hermit. They looked at a U.S. portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, pulled data from 1960 to 2017. They looked at rebalancing monthly, quarterly, annually, using a 2% threshold if the asset was two percentage points away from the target, as well as a 4% threshold. They also looked at whether they rebalanced fully back to the target, only rebalanced halfway, or only a fourth of the way. They have this huge table. The returns from all of those strategies, all those different combinations, the annual return ranges from 9.1% to 9.3%, with most being at 9.1% to 9.2%. So really, no difference, whether it was monthly, quarterly, annually, or those thresholds. They also looked at delaying the rebalancing based on trends, a 12-month trend delay based on the three-month trend. So if stocks were doing well, they wouldn't sell. They would wait to rebalance until the trend reversed. What was the return of waiting? The same, 9.1% average annual return to 9.2%. So that was one study. Another study was by Hong and myers Bronze. They also looked at a 60-40 U.S. portfolio. The data was from 1979 to 2019. In this case, the annualized compound return For the monthly, quarterly, annually, it ranged from 10.39% to 10.45%. That's a compound return, so six basis points. Didn't matter. They actually had two different annual ones. One where they rebalanced in December and one where they rebalanced annually in June. When they looked at risk tolerances or rebalancing based on the tolerance band, they had a range from 1%, they would rebalance when it got 1% away from the target, up to 10%, including a 2.5%, 5%, a 7.5%. And they looked at, well, if we re- rebalance back to the target, they also looked at those same thresholds and just rebalanced to either its upper bound or its upper range if it was overweight or its lower bound if it was underweight. Again, the compound annualized return... Range from 10.39% to 10.64%. Those returns are so close together, again, it doesn't matter which approach is used. If we look at volatility, it wasn't really that different. The lowest volatility is 9.6%, and the highest volatility, so this would be annual volatility, the ups and downs was 10.2%. If we look at the average equity allocation over time, because clearly if you're rebalancing less frequently, the stocks are going to become a higher weight. The methodology that led to the highest average weight was rebalancing just to the lower upper bounds, and that threshold is 10%. In that case, the average allocation ended up being 65% to stocks instead of 60 But even then, that had the highest return of 10.6% annualized. But if we did a monthly rebalance, the average equity allocation was 60%, which is what you would expect, but the compound annualized return was 10.4%. So only 0.2% less than using that 10% tolerance band and only rebalancing to the lower or upper range of that band. That shows that that rebalancing monthly, there was some benefit of that return to the mean. Even though stocks outperform bonds, delaying and waiting doesn't really change the outcome very much. Now, that's using different asset classes in a portfolio. If we just look at stocks, there was some studies where they created random stock portfolios One study looked at daily stock returns from 2007 to 2021, over 900 stocks. They created 1,000 different portfolios, some with five stocks, some with 50, some with 100 stocks. Then they would rebalance using different methodologies. And in this case, there wasn't much difference between the buy and hold portfolios and the rebalance portfolios of just stocks. And the difference was even smaller if the more stocks there were, if there were five stocks. Yeah, there could be some performance differences between rebalancing and buy and hold. But it certainly wasn't the level that I would have thought. So even if you're running a stock portfolio, it's not critical to rebalance every month or every year. Now, if this is a 30-year portfolio, then yeah, in that case, due to positive skewness, over-concentration, there will need to be some rebalancing. In conclusion, then, we rebalance our portfolios at some interval to reduce over-concentration to increase diversification and reduce our maximum drawdown risk, because we only get one shot, and what we care about is our end-of-period wealth. We want our wealth to compound, and so we want to make sure, to the extent possible, we can reduce those big maximum drawdowns because it can cut our capital in half, and it takes more time and higher returns to recoup those. Unfortunately, we're not Mark Spitznagel and can identify some cost-effective safe haven to completely cut off the downside. Although I continue to look and will continue to research. But the best we can do now is create a diversified portfolio with maximum drawdown risk that we're comfortable with and rebalance. There is no one method for rebalancing that is better than another method. They're all effective monthly, quarterly, annually, threshold. We need to be mindful of the cost, particularly taxes. We also need to be mindful of our emotions. Some investors just like that calendar approach, takes all the guessing out of it. They don't have to worry about, oh, I don't want to put more money in this asset class that has underperformed. So sometimes having a specific rule can help us better control our We can also be opportunistic in our rebalancing, just rebalance over time as we get new cash flows into our portfolio or as we see opportunities. Again, what we want to make sure is that our portfolio over time doesn't get more risky than what our tolerance is for volatility or a maximum drawdown risk. So there needs to be some rebalancing at some point, either opportunistic or scheduled or threshold-based. The reality is we shouldn't fret over it. Don't spend so much time worrying about rebalancing. Choose the approach that best fits with your investment approach in philosophy. What works best for controlling your emotions? But at the end of the day, we do need to rebalance at some point to continue to have diversification, to not become overly concentrated, to not be harmed by volatility drag, where an unexpected big portfolio loss that we really hadn't planned on because we became too heavy in stocks. We need to be mindful of it, but the specific strategy isn't really that important. They all work effectively, all the different approaches that we discussed here. That then is episode 356. Thanks for listening to the episode. In addition to the free podcast, there are some additional ways I can help you with your investing. First, consider signing up for my weekly Insider's Guide email. This email not only introduces that week's podcast and links, but also includes a well thought out essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. Another way I would love to help you is if you become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gets you access to portfolio building tools, education, and a community to help strengthen your investment skills, to generate more wealth over time, because you'll be able to focus more on the critical drivers of investment returns and minimize mistakes. We'd love to have you as a member. Please sign up for the Insider's Guide and check out Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.